If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine. So this is our June 2011 issue. Coming up this month, we have... British intelligence did not give the Russian army much more than four to six weeks. That was David Reynolds on Operation Barbarossa. He hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't crossed the line, but he was regarded as a major threat and a major troublemaker. That was Angus Constant on Captain Kidd. They took a, a, a truly vast amount of material. It was far, far ahead of its time. Michael Wood on the people behind the BBC's Doomsday Project. Over the long run, we've got some of the first World War II records potentially being made available as well over the four-year period. And that was Oliver Morley, Chief Executive of the National Archives. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. Now, regular listeners will recall that we recently canvassed your views on our podcast, so thanks to everyone who completed the survey. The responses were extremely instructive and have given us a steer on where we need to improve. The randomly selected winner of the iPad was Edmund Baker from Hove, so congratulations, Mr Baker. Now, we'd really like to hear from you on a more regular basis, so we've set up an email address, podcast at historyextra.com, where you can email in your thoughts on the podcast. Alternatively, we've set up a voicemail number where you can leave your thoughts. The number is a UK number, and it's 0117 230 2002, or if you're calling from overseas, it's 0044 117 230 2002. UK landline callers will pay local rate, and overseas callers uh, will pay different charges. We'll broadcast or read out any particularly trenchant, witty or insightful comments in future issues of the podcast. So please do email or call with your thoughts. And now for our first interview. Rob Attar, BBC History magazine's deputy editor, has been in conversation with David Reynolds, the Professor of International History at Cambridge University. Yes, and we're looking back at Operation Barbarossa, which was launched 70 years ago this month. Three million German troops poured into the Soviet Union, beginning a fight to the death between the two dictatorships. This had very serious implications for Britain as well, especially in the event of a German victory. And I've been speaking to David Reynolds about how Britain reacted to the invasion and what assistance it was able to give to its new Russian allies. 70 years ago this month, Operation Barbarossa began and the Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union. This was obviously a worrying time for Stalin, but what did it mean for Britain? 
Well, in the short term, uh, the invasion of Russia meant uh, a relief for Britain because it was clear that Hitler's forces were being directed eastward, not westward. So it was a breathing space for Britain. The issue was how long would this breathing space be? British intelligence uh, did not give the Russian army much more than four to six weeks. Their record in um, uh, against the Finns earlier in the war had not been great. The German army had steamrolled through France a year before. So people in London were not putting a lot of money initially on the, the Red Army. So the question was, it was a breathing space, yes, but the question was just how long uh, would the respite last? And assuming that the Soviet Union was defeated, what were the potential outcomes for Britain out of that? What might happen? Well, uh, if the Soviet Union was defeated, uh, then Hitler would have further resources in the eastern part of Europe, not just now in Poland, but across the Ukraine, which was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. Uh, Much of Russia's industry was uh, west of Moscow, so Hitler could reckon to conquer that. Although, obviously, the, uh, the German army would have to regroup after a major war, basically, Hitler could then turn west again with much greater resources and without any worry about his eastern front at all against Britain. So that was the, 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 the real fear, that the breathing space might simply be one which actually would benefit Hitler in the medium term, not Britain. And obviously at this point, America wasn't in the war yet either. So really, the British Empire would be then virtually alone against the Germans. Yes, that's right. And of course, the other possible fear was that if the Germans penetrated deep into Russia, then it would start to open up uh, even bigger nightmares, such as the possibility that they might press down towards the Caucasus, they might threaten Britain's oil supply from uh, from Persia. And was there any potential threats to parts of the British Empire if, let's say, the Germans did overcome the Soviet Union? In 1942, the the threat became a more generalised one to the British Empire as a whole, because when the Germans drove down uh, towards Stalingrad, this was by this time the Japanese were in the war as well. And there were nightmare scenarios that the Japanese would be uh, moving from Burma towards India, from the east. Uh, Maybe the Germans, if they broke through all the Soviet resistance, could then push on, in a sense, to link up with the Japanese from the west. And certainly there was talk amongst the, uh, in the German Navy, about uh, cooperation with the Japanese Navy in a uh, coordinated assault on Britain's imperial position in, in southern Asia. And do we know whether the Germans actually had concrete invasion plans for Britain if they had managed to defeat the Soviet Union? Well, the the invasion of, of, of Britain was always a, a, a risky endeavour and one that the Germans were not particularly prepared for. The alternative, which again was one that the German Navy was very keen on, was to really try to break Britain's supply lines. Um, in other words, to strangle uh, Britain by blockade rather than direct invasion. And that was certainly uh, an issue that Churchill was concerned about uh, in his memoirs. He said that what really gave him a lot of sleepless nights was the concern of not so much about invasion in 1940 as about uh, the Battle of the Atlantic in, in 1942. In other words, it wasn't so much the Battle of Britain itself, but the Battle of the Atlantic that, that, that really alarmed him. And presumably, if the Soviet Union had been conquered, the Germans could put all their resources into things like the Battle of the Atlantic and make it much easier for them to achieve that. Well, yes. I mean, this is not something that you can do overnight because, of course, that the, the war against the Soviet Union is a land war. Mm. The war uh, against Britain involves a much bigger naval capability, but the Germans would have been able to build up their resources in that direction with a very secure base on, on the continent of Europe. So we're not necessarily talking about an immediate overnight threat but a situation in which the the cards uh, are more and more stacked against Britain as the war goes on, if the Germans continue to be successful. Were there any contingency plans within Britain as to what to do if the Soviet Union were defeated? There wasn't much more that could be done. In in the immediate 
aftermath of the German attack on Russia, Churchill instructs that Britain's anti-invasion preparations should be at what he calls concert pitch by September 41. Uh, in other words, this is as it were, um, putting back in place the kinds of plans that had been there in, the, in 1940 uh, with stronger resources behind them. But in the end, there wasn't an awful lot that could be done. They had to watch and wait the outcome of, of, of Hitler's invasion of Russia and, and see what happened. And did Britain give much assistance to the Soviet Union at this point? Yes, uh, one of Churchill's immediate moves, and rather remarkably for someone who was such a, a renowned anti-communist, was to say that basically that any enemy of Hitler was a friend of Britain. Uh, so he offered full support in speeches to the Soviet Union. In practice, uh, there was a limit to what could be provided. Um, supplies were sent, but it's, uh, they, the, the routes were pretty risky, either the long way around through Persia or uh, the northern route through Arctic waters, which was very dangerous for the Royal Navy. Um, so a lot of this was more rhetorical than real in, 19, uh, in 1941 and, and into 1942. Was there ever a similar situation as with France, that Britain was worried about committing too many resources in case it backfired and then Britain would be left alone? Certainly Churchill, I think, was wary about that initially. Churchill didn't have very much in his locker, as it were, Stalin sends an impassioned appeal in September, early September 1941, asking Churchill to mount a second front in either France or the Balkans of 25 to 30 divisions. Well, that's complete cloud cuckoo land. Churchill doesn't have 30 usable divisions in the whole British Army at this stage. And if, you know, as it is, the divisions he's got are deployed all over the place, not just in the Far East, but in uh, a major war which is going on in North Africa, uh, troops in the Middle East as well, as well as the troops that are still needed for home defence. So, um, uh, yes, Churchill is wary about making over commitments, but basically he doesn't have an awful lot that he, he can offer, particularly not in terms of a trained army. Uh, which is, is still being worked up. And do we know what the reaction of the British public was to Operation Barbarossa? Did they realise the significance of this to the wider war? Uh, well, I think they could see that uh, it obviously was a breathing space. Once the Russian resistance becomes established, then there is a tremendous outpouring in 1942 of sympathy and support for uh, what are often called our gallant Russian allies. Um, and this comes from the left, from people like Stafford Cripps, uh, politician, former ambassador in Moscow, also from the right, uh, Max Beaverbrook, the, the newspaper tycoon, is, is one of the big leaders of, of, of the movement for a second, second front now in, in early 1942. So, yes, there is a, a considerable sense of enthusiasm for the Russians on the basic premise that, that they're doing most of the fighting against the Germans at this stage, that uh, it's not clear that the British Army is achieving very much and it's on a much smaller scale than the struggles on the Eastern Front. It's the Russians who are doing the, the heavy lifting, as it were, and, and resisting Germany remarkably well, considering the low expectations at the start of the war. And at what point do you think the British government began to believe that the Soviet Union could actually win the war against the Germans? Well, certainly in um, by the uh, October of 1941, it's it's clear that Germany is not going to have a walkover. That this is not this war is is not going to be uh, over decisively in the way that people had feared uh, in in June. In December, the Red Army mounts a successful counteroffensive around Moscow, drives the Germans back. But then Stalin gets carried away. He mounts a big counteroffensive all along the front, overreaches himself. The Red Army gets exposed, loses lots of soldiers. And then there is a big new German offensive from May 1942. And that's the one that then rolls way down southeast, not to Moscow this time, but down into the Caucasus and ends up at Stalingrad. Um, so if you got to, you know, say September, beginning of September 42, 
um, there's a real feeling that this is a repeat of 1941, except this time the Germans are, you know, are really likely to win. So although we tend to think about the story as being largely decided in, in 1941, in 1942, a lot of people in the West were sort of saying, well, maybe this is the year when the Russians are going to get rolled over. So it's not really until after the victory at Stalingrad, from, uh, which is the end of January 1943, that you really have a sense in the West that the tide is turning on the Eastern Front and is turning decisively in the Russian favour. And um, over the course of the whole war, Russia lost, I suppose, around 30 million lives. Do you think that that sacrifice is recognised enough nowadays for people in Britain when we think about the Second World War? My experience is that it's not... um, it's not well known. I think there's a recognition in a vague way, yes, that Russians lost a lot of people. But, you know, if one says, for example, that more Russians died in the siege of Leningrad than the total British and American dead in the whole war combined, those two countries combined, that's a rather shocking statistic. If you say that Russia lost or the Soviet Union lost maybe something like 15% of its pre-war population, that's a frightening sort of statistic as well. So I think that while we are aware in a general way of sort of ethics like Stalingrad, we haven't really fitted it into our larger narrative about the Second World War. And one of the things I'm concerned about as a historian is is saying, yes, we do need to honour and recognise our own stories of the war and the sacrifice made by our own people in the war and the heroism of that. But we also need to take a more than purely national perspective on what was a world war, a global war. And we need to know more and understand more about the experience of countries like the Soviet Union, with whom we were estranged for a long period in the Cold War, or indeed China, uh, where there is a whole story about the Chinese war and possibly 15 million people die in that, which again, doesn't really fit into our familiar British narrative about uh, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz and D-Day and all that kind of thing. So need to break out of a purely national view of this international war. And so I suppose considering that Russia in the end killed or defeated the majority of German troops in the whole war, could you say that Operation Barbarossa was actually the most important battle for Britain despite the fact Britain wasn't actually involved in it? Uh, it was, in the end, a, uh, a a battle that had huge significance for Britain. Quite how you weigh up the different factors in the overall Allied victory is a very open question. Uh, neither Russia nor Britain would have, uh, I think, been in such a strong position without the huge material resources of the United States behind them. Um, the Red Army's drive west uh, into Nazi Europe was greatly assisted by the role of um, British and American bombers, not so much in directly what they did to German industry and German cities, but in terms of bringing of of forcing Hitler to bring the Luftwaffe back from the Eastern Front and indeed from the Western Front to defend German cities. And so that exposed the German army to air attack. And of course, you could say, I think quite legitimately, that both the United States and the Soviet Union would have been in much worse situation if Britain hadn't held out in 1940. So, uh, you know, all these factors are relevant to uh, to the outcome of the war. But certainly a central factor in the story of why Nazi Germany was defeated on land in, in, in the war in Europe was the Red Army. And that's a story which I think we still need to explore in, in this country and know more about in, in Britain. That was Professor David Reynolds. You can find out more about Britain and Barbarossa in an article he's written for our June issue. Plus, David is presenting a documentary called Uncle Joe on BBC4 this month. Next up, Charlotte Hodgman, section editor on the magazine, has been talking to the historian and pirate expert Angus Constam. On the 23rd of May 1701, Captain William Kidd was hanged at Wapping after being found guilty of piracy and murder in one of the most sensational trials of its time. However, research over the last century has revealed crucial documents that seem to reveal Kidd's trial was, in fact, rigged. Was he really an arch-pirate, rightly sentenced to death for his crimes, or was his a miscarriage of justice? 
I spoke to Angus Constam to find out more. Okay, then, Angus, um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Captain Kidd, the man, and his background. Where is he from, and, and what was his profession? Kidd was actually a, was a seaman who was born in Scotland, in Dundee, and uh, went to America as probably as a teenager. Now, some of the records, um, some, some histories, claim that Kidd was actually born in Greenock, in Scotland, on the River Clyde. But uh, that came from Captain Johnson's general history of pirates written in 1724. And, uh, and he didn't really do enough research because um, we've actually found the, uh, <laughs> the, the birth records and Kidd was definitely from, from Dundee, <laughs> poor fellow. In the, in the feature, we talk about him being a pirate uh, and a privateer. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what the differences were between those and how he got into that profession? Right. Kidd was, is really known as a pirate, um, but he would have been horrified by that, uh, that label. But he considered himself, first of all, a seaman uh, and a, a merchant captain and then a privateer. He'd made his name and his mark. Uh, serving as a privateer during various wars between England and France during the late 17th century. And the difference is, while a pirate attacks anyone, uh, regardless of nationality, a privateer uh, just attacks countries that they're allowed to. So that the way that works is that, say, England was at war with France, the English government would issue letters of mark or, or privateering licenses that allow attacks on French merchant shipping. Now, essentially, that's a kind of legalized piracy because what happens is the captain, the privateer, captures the French ship, um, sells the ship and the goods, and then the government get a, a percentage, normally ten or twenty percent of the of the profit. So everyone wins, apart from the French, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a pretty standard thing right through the 17th, 18th, and right into the 19th century. But the difference is, of course, when the war ends, the letter of mark was null and void. So uh, these lucrative privateering licenses were um, were only as good as uh, as the length of the war. So when once peace came, uh, these people had to go back to normal, legitimate um, trading, or else cross the line and become pirates. And the thing with Kidd, he's he was a privateer who was actually given a license to attack French ships and to hunt down pirates. So he was he saw himself more as a pirate hunter than mm. a pirate. And who who would have paid him to actually do this? <laughs> well, when he first set up as a privateer, he was operating for himself and he was given a, a privateering license in New York. But the the big turnaround for him came in in 1695 when he came to London. And it was there that he met this group of backers who saw an opportunity to build a ship, send Kid out to the, to the Indian Ocean, and then let him hunt down pirates and hunt down French merchant ships because England was at war with France. And it all seemed like a very good idea at the time. Um, but his backers were actually a sort of slightly shadowy group of noblemen. Uh, most of them, uh, five noblemen that put up about £6,000 between them. It doesn't sound a lot today, but in, in those days that was, that was uh, a small fortune. And, and why, what was their um, motivation? Why, would they, why did they do this? <laughs> well, essentially it was greed, because okay. the, the thing is, um, the government gets 10% of the, of the loot, but this was a private venture. This was a sort of... They, these were all members of the government. These were essential, essentially cabinet ministers. Mm-hmm. There were, his main contact was Lord Bellamont. Um, there was also the Earl of Romney, the, the Secretary of State, um, uh, the future Lord General... Uh, the first Lord of the Admiralty, these were all big people. Mm. and uh, But they'd actually done this deal where they circumvented the usual Admiralty law and they stood to gain the profit. And actually, it wasn't just 10 or 20%. They were going to get the, the bulk of the profit of anything Kid made. So they stood to, ga- to gain a great deal. Hence, the agreement was a little shadowy. So when and where did it all go wrong for Kid's? Well, it really went when he signed on the dotted line because what happened is uh, he couldn't find a crew in London for his new ship, the Adventure Galley, so he sailed to New York. And once there, he realised that 
he wasn't going to find a crew even there. Uh, people weren't really going to sign up because all they would get was about 10% of the goods or 20% rather than the 80 or 90%, which would be normally divided up amongst everyone, the greater share going to the captain, but the crew would get things too. So he therefore turned it on its head and went against his, his big backers and said, look, as long as we can, we have to keep the crew happy and, uh, and let's go off and sail and, and capture things and it'll all be sorted out once I come back with lots of valuable cargo and goods. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he was on a legal wrong footing when he set off and from there it just went downhill. But his real problem was halfway across the Atlantic, he bumped into a naval squadron escorting a, a convoy of East Indiamen. And the thing is, they they saw Kidd as a little shifty. He was in this big, powerful ship, um, as big as a, as a regular warship, and they thought he was a pirate. Um, so they were a bit a bit sort of hesitant. And then the, when the, the admiral wanted to press some of his crew onto, onto Kidd's ship, I mean, so from Kidd's ship into their own naval ships, mm-hmm. um, Kidd decided this just wasn't going to happen, so he disappeared in the night. And uh, so when, when Don came up, Kidd had disappeared. He, he'd left the convoy, and the Navy sent frigates out to chase him down, but, but he, was, he was long gone and over the horizon. When the Admiral came back to Portsmouth, he sent a report to the Admiralty in London that said that he thought that Kidd was a pirate. And the same thing happened with the, the guy in charge of the East Indiaman, the convoy he was escorting. So things were just getting worse and worse for him. He hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't crossed the line, but he was regarded as a major threat and a major troublemaker, uh, with the result that all the ports in India, where he could normally have, have put in to take on water and stores and, and find new crew, they were closed to him. He was essentially branded a pirate and an outlaw, and, and no legal port was, was open. Um, and then what happened was, in January uh, 1698, at the end of January, he finally found a ship, a French registered cargo ship called the Quidda Merchant. Now, the Quidda Merchant was essentially registered with French papers, uh, but it was essentially an, an Indian ship. But it was a rich cargo, and it was valued at, at the equivalent of about £9 million today, or £75,000 in those days. So this was a good haul. He'd finally hit the big time. And it was a French ship. It was all legal. But even that wasn't good enough. Uh, so when he finally was taken to to London and had to stand trial, uh, the thing that would have let him off was the fact that uh, somebody could have produced the French papers mm. uh, and, uh, and proved that this was a, a legal capture. But uh, mysteriously, they went missing. So he, he did actually capture the ship then? He captured the ship and he captured the uh, captured this large quantity of, of money, of textile, rich textiles, mainly, mainly silks and satins and so on. Mm-hmm. Plus it had gold and silver and jewels on board. So it was a pretty good haul. Yeah. So he decided to cut his losses and he would head back home. Before he did, Kid made the mistake of going to Isle de Sainte-Marie or, or St. Mary's Isle, and the, a little island off the north eastern coast of Madagascar. That was a known pirate haunt. So really to up his credentials when he went home and just to put the icing on the cake of a, of a rich cruise, he, he thought he'd try to capture a pirate. And one of them was a man who he'd worked with before as a privateer, a man who had turned to piracy and a man that Kidd had a grudge against called Robert Culliford. He went into the harbour and he found Culliford's ship there. Culliford had a huge ship, uh, as big as Kidd's, but Kidd's was in, in no fit state. By that time, the, the ship was starting to fall apart. After three years of, of Teredo worms and, and rotting and, and, and just general wear and tear, the ship was in no fit state to, to sail into battle. So what Kidd did was half his crew was on the prize ship, the Kidd Mar- Merchant, and he waited off the pirate haven for the Kidd Merchant to arrive. And he, he wallowed there for, for about a week at sea, and eventually the other ship arrived. So he had finally had enough men to go and attack the pirates. And he gave the orders to, to, to launch the attack, and his crew promptly mutinied. 
So uh, things things weren't weren't looking good. And instead of going and capturing this pirate and taking him home in, in arms, Kidd found himself as a prisoner in the pirate den. His own ship was captured, and all the cargo. So things, this was a bit of a bit of a setback, to say the least. <laughs> but what happened was Culliford actually went off in his own ship to to go and hunt down East Indiamen, and he took most of Kidd's crew with him. Kidd had a number of people who refused to sign up for the pirates, and they sneaked out, loaded what they could of the treasure back into the Kidder merchant, and then they disappeared off. They, they sneaked out of the pirate den and sailed off. It was quite a daring feat. And he sailed right round the coast of Africa, across the Atlantic, and headed back to New England, where he knew he, he, was, he, he might have been safe. And his objective was not going home to, to New York, but he wanted to hook up with Earl of Bellamont, his original backer, who was then the governor of New York and Massachusetts. And did he meet up with him? He did. But first of all, Kidd stopped in the Caribbean, unloaded most of his cargo, um, bought a little sloop, uh, a small ship, and set off with a handful of men. He then buried the rest of his remaining treasure, one of the few occasions of somebody even accused of piracy of burying treasure. Mm-hmm. And he stuck this in a, in, a, in a place called Gardner's Island, which is a little island off Long, off Long Island in Long Island Sound. And the governor met him and spoke to him, and he was, he was fairly diffident, fairly standoffish. And, and then two days later, Kidd found himself arrested. What had happened is while he'd been at sea, all these rumors had been circulating back in London, and the Earl of Bellamont... He, he saw this as a huge political hot potato. He wanted to distance himself from Kidd and distance himself from this sort of shady deal mm. that he and his, his fellow cabinet members had set up. So he used Kidd as a scapegoat. He walks like a pirate. He talks like a pirate. He must be a pirate. So that's it. We, we arrest him. So they arrested him, and eventually Kidd was shipped back to London to stand trial. And when in, your, in the feature you say that the trial was rigged. Is that, is that the case? Well, pretty much. I mean, poor kid. He was wanting to explain himself to the House of Commons. And this was a political scandal, a huge political scandal. The government was divided into two parties. Essentially, there were the Tories and the Whigs. And the five guys who backed the deal in the first place, they were all members of the Whig government. The, the opposition were delighted by this because they thought they could expose this, except... Kidd landed in London the day that Parliament took a break. So essentially, he was thrown into Newgate Prison and he had to languish there for the best part of a year before he could actually be hauled out, uh, explain himself to the House of Commons, answer questions. He was called before the House. And uh, once that was done, he could then be put on trial. But during that time, he was denied access to anything. He didn't have money. He was denied legal counsel. He was essentially left to rot. And uh, meanwhile, the Admiralty were building a case to, to damn him in court. And, uh, and the opposition and the government were running around in circles to try to minimise any potential scandal. And do you think Kidd actually expected to be put to death? Do you, or do you think he expected to be let off? Oh, I think he, he presumed he'd be let off. He, when, he came, when the trial started, um, he'd He'd been spent almost a year in prison. He he appeared at the before that. He, just before that, he appeared in the House of Commons, and what he didn't do was name his backers. He thought that he could strike a deal with the the five narrative wells, Lord Bellamont and his colleagues, and they essentially disowned him. They they didn't help him at all. Um, then what happened was he had the trial, um, and. Essentially, pirate trials, instead of being a sort of long, drawn-out affair, as you'd expect nowadays with councils for the defence and the prosecution and so on, Kidd was appointed two lawyers who could, at the last minute, the day before the trial, and they could only answer on legal matters, not help his defence. It was a very strange setup. Yeah. Um, and But the prosecution had had a year to, pre- to prepare. They'd taken all the documents... Kidd asked for documents, but he was denied crucial pieces of paper he needed for his defence, including that all-important thing from the Kidd Merchant, the French pass, which said that essentially this was a French ship and it was all legal and above board. When the trial uh, trial came, he was this, it was essentially a very quick railroad through, and 
he really didn't have a chance to defend himself. Um, but the most important thing is his whole defense rested on these pieces of paper that, uh, that proved he'd, he'd, uh, he'd captured a French ship. And mysteriously, during that year he was in prison, those had gone missing. Uh, they subsequently turned up in the, in the National Archives hundreds of years later, which of course did no good to him, but did help historians think that he might have a case after all. And so he was put to death. Poor kid was taken um, and executed. He, on the, he was sentenced to death, and these things happened pretty quickly. Uh, it had essentially a rigged two-day trial, and on the 23rd of May, 1701, he was taken to execution dock in Wapping. He gives a speech. He proclaims his innocence right up to the end. Uh, short prayers said. They pull the platform out from under him, and the rope breaks. And so he's actually writhing around on the ground with a choking. And what normally happens is that's seen as sort of an act of God. And, and often the, uh, the condemned man is, is reprieved or at least just thrown in jail. Uh, but not for kid. They found a new rope, dragged him up to the top of the scaffold and, and did it properly the second time around. And, and finally, what, what actually happened to his treasure? Has anything ever been found? Aha, well... Various bits and pieces have come up al along the way because remember that Lord Bellamont, who was then the governor of New York and Massachusetts, had recovered the treasure, all the stuff hidden in Gardner's Island. However, that hasn't stopped uh, people with spades and coming along at dead of night and metal detectors <laughs> to essentially turn the place into a... Into, it looks like the Somme by the time they've finished. It's, Gardner's Island is notoriously... Uh, popular centre for for uh, for treasure hunters, hoping that that something was left behind. Because if you could find a little bit of treasure that could be associated with Captain Kidd, that would be a real real find. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. That was historian Angus Constam on the trial and execution of Captain William Kidd. You can read his feature on Captain Kidd in our June issue. Angus is also the author of The Complete History of Piracy, which is published by Osprey. And now we move on to a lost historical record that's come to light once more, the Doomsday Book. No, not William the Conqueror's 11th century survey, but rather the BBC's Doomsday Project survey dating from 1986. 25 years ago, the BBC asked the public to submit details about their local area to help compile a digital snapshot of the country. Over a million people took part. But the idea was ahead of its time and the archive soon became difficult to access as technology moved on. So now the BBC has produced a website, Doomsday Reloaded, where the public can at last browse the survey data. The historian Michael Wood was involved in the original project, so I called him for a chat about what happened then and what's happened now. 
we're now looking at the uh, the Doomsday Project being relaunched in a sense in 2011 after the initial launch in 1986. Now you were sort of involved in that initial program, weren't you? So what was the original Doomsday Project? Well, it's a it's a funny story, really. I did a series, first series I did uh, on BBC back then in the early 80s was a series called In Search of the Dark Ages, and uh, in that series in the early 80s, I did a film on William the Conqueror. And in those days, of course, you could uh, access the real manuscript of Doomsday Book. It was still one manuscript instead of being divided up as it is now, and you could you could handle it, and we, we filmed with it, and it was a um, you know, wonderful, wonderful experience. And after we finished that series, I remember saying to my boss, um, you know, the 1986 anniversary is coming up. We, we should do a series of films on William the Conqueror and Doomsday Book. And while we're at it, wouldn't it be fun to do a survey, some kind of survey of the modern-day country with which we could compare the original survey and those in between? So that was the, the inciting incident, if you like, at least as I saw it. But at that point, I think Roger talked to Peter Armstrong, who was uh, a BBC producer and a brilliant guy. A visionary guy, and this idea had sort of nestled with Peter, and Peter came up with this extraordinary plan to do a, a you know, a community-generated survey of the UK. And you, what you've got to remember in this is that this is before the days of the World Wide Web. Mm. So none of this uh, stuff that we take for granted now, just being able to call up the British History Online or the National Archive and call up individual documents, you know, take your village in Doomsday Book and just download it for, for three quid or whatever you can do now with the National Archive. None of this existed. And Peter saw ahead almost, it was far, far ahead of its time. You know, they had thousands and thousands of photographs that had to be individually uh, copied onto this uh, this new technology, the video disc, you know, they took testimonies from uh, villages and communities and schools, especially thousands of schools across the UK, women's institutes groups across the UK, community groups, a, a, a truly vast amount of material, which they then used a technology that hadn't been invented when Peter came up with the idea to, to turn this into a video disc. And the idea was you'd buy the video disc player and you could access this disc of material from all over the UK, plus a kind of official disc, if you like, which had government stats and census information and expert commentaries and essays and a whole mass of other information. It was an incredible idea. And um, I can remember... You know, we were making these films from BBC in White City and the, the team were in some sort of secret base nearby and we all, we all, they had this kind of aura around them as if they were rather like the, you know, the computer equivalent of space pioneers, you know, <laughs> going, boldly going where no one had gone before. And, uh, um, and there was an amazing buzz about it that year. I mean, they really did. It wasn't entirely comprehensive, but they really did get, you know, thousands and thousands of schools across the UK to contribute with photographs, essays, accounts of what their life was like and all this kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, obviously it, was, it was done on the anniversary of, of the original Doomsday, but was there, was there, were there any particular similarities between those two surveys? Was there any, any, any comparisons you draw? Well, uh, you know, similarities are one thing, but comparisons are, are certainly of, of very great interest. You know, obviously the original Doomsday Survey in 1086 was just England, and really it was England south of the Tees. Uh, but um, within that, you've got 13,000 uh, places, towns and villages. You've got the itemizing of the population and the, the class of the population, and in effect, you know, the jobs that they did in society. You've got a vast amount of data on the economy with some uh, income of the, you know, value of the estates and um, even in the more detailed regional surveys that, that have survived, you know, the rough surveys or the preliminary surveys for East Anglia and the Southwest. You've got every you know, the animals listed as well, which is what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, actually. There's a very famous passage in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for the commissioning of the original doomsday. It says, you know, King William, Christmas 1085, he had 
Christmas with his council in, in Gloucester, and then he sat down with his wise men, and they had deep speech, it says in Anglo-Saxon, deep speech, about this land of England, what kind of land it was, how it was populated, you know, who the people were. Um, and, and he sends out his men all over to gather the information, and they bring all these writings back, and they're given to him. So that, that's how it, the story is told. And uh, even in 1986, you're talking about, I don't know what the population was then, 50 million maybe, well, it was only maybe two and a half million in, in 1086. But there's a linear growth from one to the other, you know, an unbroken continuity. The towns are still the towns. Uh, the shires pretty much still the shires, you know. And, uh, it, you know, vast amount of that data can be watched as it grows through the other great surveys, you know, the 127900 roll survey, the, the great poll taxes of the 14th century, the Tudor and Stuart Hearth taxes, the early censuses, you know, we're the best recorded nation on earth. Um, it's staggering to be able to take a single place in England in 1086 and, and its population and be able to trace them all the way through, you know, till today. So there was part of that was the, you know, uh, the attraction, if you like, of the 1986 survey. But you have to remember it was before the Internet, before the World Wide Web, and uh, the point was that so many of the technical problems they had to overcome, they were really trying to find the answers for the first time. And, in fact, the technology just didn't work in the end. The playing machines were far too expensive. Uh, the whole project didn't take off. And the technology was very rapidly lost. So there's been this huge issue in the intervening 25 years is how do we access the information on these disks? And um, one or two computing pioneers and heroes have managed to do that. And the great thing about it now is the BBC can relaunch the 1986 disk because they can access the information again. So, so basically, the, the, the web has, has you know come to the rescue, saved the day, and, and they've been the BBC can now disseminate this information uh, via this new website. And what sort of things does it tell us now in 2011 that you know, looking back to 1986, what's what, are, there, are there big differences that we can see? Well, I think the you know what you're talking about is a very intimate portrait of Britain in 1986, and like all periods of history, you know, every every survey of this kind, like any historical document, is a reflection of its time. You know. You've only got to look at the original Doomsday Book from 1086. You know, you'd had 20 years of violence and appropriation and murder and, you know, dispossession. The, the, out of 1,400 chief tenants in 1066 in Anglo-Saxon England, only two still were, were there in 1086. You know, it's a wholesale destruction of the old order. The book isn't just a neutral document. And the book isn't a neutral document. The disc isn't a neutral document in 1986. It's, it was right in the middle of Thatcherism. You've had the Falklands. You've had the, um, the great miners' strike lasting for more than a year. A lot of social division. And these are even these get reflected in some of the schools' accounts of their own places, you know. But it's an intimate portrait of, from communities all over the UK, especially from the schools, you know, the accounts of their places, what they did, what you did, what your daily life was like, what clothes were like, what what people got up to, uh, photographs of your community, uh, all of that's on the disc. And finally, still on the subject of historical records, Rob Attar has interviewed the new Chief Executive of the National Archives, Oliver Morley. That's right. Oliver Morley has recently been appointed CEO of the National Archives, which is the official archive of the British government, among other things. I've been speaking to him about his plans for the future of the organisation at a time of budget cuts and with the rapid growth of digital records. What do you see as the big challenges for the National Archives over the next four years? There are three, really. The first significant challenge we have to deal with is, of course, the spending reduction over the whole four-year period. But we are well positioned to deal with that. We made some cuts last year in advance of the spending review, which have allowed us to shift 
our investment into this year. So we've made really significant investment in the Q site and our services, which means that we're very well positioned for the whole four years. And uh, certainly our plan is not to make any significant cuts in public services at all over the four years. And indeed put in place some new services as well. So our first challenge, we are feeling that we're well positioned to deal with. The second area is the 20-year rule. And although to your readers that it's not exactly historical, what it does frame is that we're going to be finding out some very interesting records from 20 years ago instead of just 30 years. So, for example, at the moment, we're really unfolding the early years of the Thatcher government. And as we shift to the 20-year rule, we'll be really moving 10 years ahead. What that means for us, though, is it doubles the amount of records we take in, which is obviously quite a tough job with an environment when we haven't got any additional money to deal with them. And it doubles the work of departments to get those records ready for us and also for us to make them as available as we possibly can to the public. So it's quite a big job. We think we'll be able to do it, but it is quite significant. And it's phased, so we'll be seeing two years from 2013 um, each year until we've caught up. So that's the second area, which I think is a challenge. The third really is the wider archive sector across the country. Obviously, the savings need to be found on a local level as well. And we want to work with local authorities, archives, business archives, religious archives, the wider archive sector to make sure that we can come through this period of retrenchment and make sure that we come through as strong as possible. And we are looking at ways to support more. We're looking at ways to take the 21st century archive strategy forward and really make sure that the archives that are so important to both your readers and the public at large are available as much as possible over the coming years. You said earlier that you don't think that frontline services will be affected by the cuts that have been imposed on you. So where is that money going to be absorbed? Well, as I say, we made cuts last year and we made cuts to staff and we cut our opening hours from six to five days a week. And we also extended our evening opening hours at the same time, though. Those savings have positioned us really well for the year to come. What we did was we took those savings as investment. And we've invested, as I said earlier, significant amounts of money in the Q site and improving services more generally. But over time, what that's going to do is position us really well for the future. It's also allowed us to make some really big energy savings as well, which means that over the four years, as funding gradually comes down, we'll still have a little bit to invest over the first three years, but we're in a very good position to maintain the services that we offer because of the savings that we've already made, and we'll be basically slowly cutting investment over the four years. And you said earlier something about new services being rolled out. What kind of things can researchers expect over the next four years? What additional services? Well, we've got a few things. When it comes to the public services, we're looking at new ways for people to get access to help. So web chat, remote service advice and document self-scanning and things like that in the reading rooms and remotely. So a better portfolio of services when you use the records. But we're also looking to launch a new catalogue. I mean, for me, one of the fundamental difficulties about using an archive is that it's not like Google. When people try and do a search, they're used to going through many, many records, many, many search results, and also occasionally having to come to queue to get access to the records. And we want to make that as easy as possible, as easy as possible for people to search, find the records they need, and then understand how best to get access to them. So we'll be launching on our beta site the new approach to catalogue and archive search, which is really incredibly innovative. And certainly over time, we expect that to replace our catalogue search as being the new way to get access to the millions of documents that we have here, both online and on site. Are there any new collections of documents likely to be becoming available to people over the next few years? Absolutely. I think one of the focus areas for us is going to be First World War diaries that are coming up over the next year. We'll be looking to do that ourselves. We're also working with some licensed partners on some really interesting crime records, which will be coming out over the year. And over the long run, we've got some of the first World War II records potentially being made available as well over the four-year period. 
So it's an exciting time, and there'll still be many more records that are being digitized. Certainly, people are still fascinated by our records, and as soon as they're launched online, there's always big demand for them. What's the impact going to be of digital and the fact that a lot more government records are now being made digitally? And how are you able to store those? Well, we had a day I convened some of the major departmental records managers across government to have a talk about that. And our view is that it's likely that the first records that start coming to us will be actually in about 2017. So what we need to do, we've already done some real innovation around the technology used to make sure that we can preserve digital records. And what we need to do is really work with departments, work across government to make sure that we can make them as accessible as possible and also to get the transfer working perfectly. But we're in a position now where we have really good storage capability, so we can certainly look after the records when they come to us. And really for us, I think the challenge is going to be how do you make government digital records, you know, a massive email database or something like that, how do you make them available to the public in a way that's easy to use, that's meaningful, because they're quite different from the more traditional, you know, here are some paper files type of records. And for me, that question of accessibility is actually going to be, in some ways, more of a challenge than the question of preservation. And so the other side of digital is making non-digital records available in a digitised format to the public. Is this something that the archives will be doing a lot more in the next few years? I think probably we could argue that we are the world leaders in that already, actually. I don't think there's realistically any archive globally that has the same kind of scale online that we do. So certainly we'll be looking to build on that success and take it forward. We have great relationships with licensed partners, and we also digitise considerable numbers of records ourselves. So certainly, even given the cost environment, it's likely that we'll carry on building on that success. How is National Archives going to be helping the other archives around the country to kind of come up to speed with all these things we've been discussing? Well, I think there's a few ways we can help, and we'll be taking on a strong leadership role in that space. But the first thing that we want to do is to be able to provide a way to share best practice and accredit really good archives. So share the benefits across the sector that we've found, but also help archives to share with each other in terms of the best way to deliver services, for example, in an environment when money is tight, or the best way to work together to deliver services to the public in tandem, say, with a local library or a local museum. But that kind of thing we'd really like to support. Second, we really want to make sure that we are in a position where we understand the state of the sector. For example, we've just completed a really detailed survey of religious archives, which certainly showed some problems, but equally showed some opportunities as well, where we could work with archives across the piece to improve things. And third, what we want to be able to do is provide both technology, so for example, cataloging or geographical gazetteering or that kind of thing to archives in a way that's really seamless and easy so that they can pick up some of the benefits of the investments we've made in technology and do that cost effectively themselves. So widening access, making things easy, building digitization and therefore all of us sharing in some of the work that we and individual archives have already done in the sector. I think through all the questions I had to ask, so um, is there anything else you'd like to mention at all? One thing that I hadn't spoken about was our web archiving project. We are basically archiving the government web at the moment. And what that means is that when you look for an old website, for example, a website from the previous government or something like that, you can find it really instantly. You just go to a broken link, for example, and it'll just click through directly into the old website. That's been incredibly successful. And we've now gone past a billion hits on the web archive with government and certainly it's something we're looking more generally for the digital record to make more available more generally and also it would be one of the technologies that we take locally as well. So you could do that in theory for any websites really? Absolutely I mean our focus is obviously government and the public record but yes intrinsically we are looking to work with local government to talk about ways that they could do that as well. That was Oliver Morley. You can find out more information on the National Archives at their website, nationalarchives.gov.uk. 
So that's it. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs just £3.95. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket, or you can, of course, take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. You'll find details in the magazine or on our website, which is www.historyextra.com. And the magazine is also published digitally, so please go to historyextra.com forward slash digital for information on that. And don't forget that we're keen to hear your comments on the podcast, so do please email us your thoughts to podcast at historyextra.com or call 0117 230 2002. That's it. Next month we'll be talking about the Crusades, King Alfred the Great and Operation Crossbow. Many thanks for listening. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.